Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame. And you got the, and there's a. Now that's a follow-up question, <laughs> Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome everybody to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. The Pot of Gold podcast is brought to you by Zaxby's, the home of handmade-to-order chicken, salads, and more than a dozen mild-to-wild sauces. Stop by your neighborhood Zaxby's today and Tire Rack, the way tire buying should be. It's been a busy week since Notre Dame's 33-9 Camping World Bowl victory over Iowa State. We've had NFL draft declarations returning for another season announcements, a grad transfer wide receiver, and another change in the coaching staff. There's so much news to cover that we decided we couldn't let the week end without recording another podcast. To help us get into some of the relevant topics, we've invited on former Notre Dame center Braxton Cave, who played for the Irish from 2008 to 2012. Braxton, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Braxton, let's start with the, the Camping World Bowl. The Irish came out motivated despite Brian Kelly expressing some concerns about their focus before the game, and they won handily. What was maybe the most impressive aspect of that victory for you? You know, it was it was nice to just see the guys come out and, and do what they were supposed to do. You know, games like that, you know, not to be fooled, Iowa State's a good football team. And, you know, even though they weren't ranked in the, the top 25 or, you know, what on paper you would think a team that Notre Dame would be playing in a bowl game, um, definitely a tough component. It was nice to see the guys come out and, and do what we wanted to see them do. Braxton, are you – disciplined or undisciplined enough now to be able to watch the ball instead of offensive linemen when you're watching games I'm, I'm sure at some point it was hard not to just focus on the offensive line play but how do you watch a game now do you watch it from the broader perspective or are you still kind of looking at that technique and so forth yeah you know I, I think it's it's definitely broadened uh, but I don't think you can ever really get away from really watching the X's and O's I actually find myself watching the defense more than anything. Um, but again, when, when I was playing and breaking down film, it was, I always enjoyed watching the end zone copy, obviously, cause you could see a lot more. So when you, when you watch it on TV, you don't quite get to see it the same. So, um, uh, I would say I've, I disciplined myself a little bit to be able to watch it, um, on TV, but there's still some things that you can't get away from. Uh, and, and, and that light, in particular, what 
are your impressions of Notre Dame's offensive line both in this game, the Camping World Bowl, and maybe through the season? What were your general impressions of their play? You know, it's they've been a, a fun group to watch. Um, you know, it's when, you know, I, I was on the, you know, I had one year with Harry Heastan, and then obviously, um, you know, Chris Wise, that, um, Zach Martin, some of these guys who, who come out and Ronnie Stanley made a splash in the NFL. Um, there was some high expectations there for what, what that O-line was going to be. Um, so I, you know, I think they've done really well. Um, it's a little bit of a different, uh, scheme than, than when I, even when I was there. Um, you don't see them get under center a whole lot anymore. Um, so it's a little bit of a different O-line play, but, no, I think overall they've been a, a fun group to watch. Braxton, with the offensive line, one of the curious things to me has been how good they've been in pass protection, but how maybe lackluster at times they've been in run blocking. What? How, how do you make sense of there being uh, maybe a, a wide gap between the, the abilities of an offensive line between run blocking and pass blocking? Well, you know, the, the big thing with run blocking is you can, you can, we, I remember always going into a game plan where we knew we were going to run the ball and it was going to be a physical game. Uh, you know, especially you, you talk about some of the, when you get into some of these Big Ten matchups, it was, um, we knew going into that week that we were going to be under center. We were going to be running the ball and you kind of get in a physicality, a groove, you know, as the game goes on because you know what to expect. Um, but, you know, obviously being in the spread and, and throwing the ball a lot more than, than what I was accustomed to, um, it makes it difficult. You know, it's obviously run blocking, pass blocking are two completely different things. Um, so I would say the biggest, maybe where the biggest gap comes from is just not being able to stay in, in a groove um, and sticking to a, a run discipline game plan. Braxton, I think you and Mike Golick Jr. both had <laughs> – more offensive line coaches than anybody in the history of college football. <laughs> and, and you had Harry Heastan, who who some people feel like is the best. From from your standpoint, is there a pronounced difference in who your position coach is? is can that position coach make that big of a difference both in team play and in your individual development? Yeah, you know, I, I would say, you know, Every four O line coaches in five years, it was you. You learn, um, you know, some different th- takeaways from each coach. I think your your position coach definitely has the biggest impact on you uh, of of all the coaches that you're surrounded between your strength coach and your position coach. That's who you're spending the majority of your time with. Um, so definitely have the biggest impact on you. I think we're. Um, I don't want to discredit anything any of the other line coaches I had because I, I had great takeaways from all of them. I think one of the big things where people found a lot of value in, in Harry was that he was such a stickler on the fundamentals and just doing things the right way. And we practiced it over and over and over and over again. If it wasn't perfect or to his liking, we did it over. And um, I think that just – it was a little bit of a change um, in, in styles – um, from what we were used to, and I think that's why a lot of people found a you know a big chunk of success uh, with Harry, and he was a good mesh for us at the time. You know, obviously it's it's different at every level. We've seen you know where you know Harry's 
um, on the, you know, on the market today. Um, and people, people can blame it on whatever they want. Um, but then today the there's, there's fit and buy-in and, and, you know, just what's going to work with each individual team and group that you're working with. Braxton, do you think Notre Dame should be knocking down Harry Heastan's door to, to try and get him to come back to Notre Dame? <laughs> you know, I would, I've actually had that question from a few different people. Uh, I, I love Harry. I, I would obviously love to see him, uh, back around, um, but at the end of the day, whatever whatever's going to be best for him and his family is, is what I would like to see. Braxton, sticking on offensive line play, I'm curious of your thoughts on how Jarrett Patterson played at center this season in his first year ever actually playing the position. How do you think he handled that, and maybe what do you think are the were the biggest challenges that he faced playing playing center uh, for the first time? Yeah, I think he did well. You know, obviously, I remember going back to my first start, my first year. Uh, it's it's a big learning curve. It's, uh, you know, you're, you're getting that very, very, very valuable experience, game time situations. You know, he's only going to continue to get better. Maybe, you know, some opportunities where you know, he can improve himself is he, he's at a little bit of a disadvantage to begin with because he's a little bit of a longer body. Um, playing center, you know, some, at times you can get some of these short, stout, you know, um, explosive guys, you know, lined up on your head, which, um, leverage becomes a, a battle. Um, so, you know, obviously experience continuing to improve his strength. I think he's got a bright future ahead of him. You're listening to the Pot of Gold podcast presented by Zaxby's. Before we hear more from Braxton Cave, let's take a short break. We know you like football. So do we. We're TireRack.com, and this is our version of a two-minute drill, except it's only 30 seconds. TireRack.com has an enormous selection of tires. Not sure which ones to buy? Use our tire decision guide to find the right tires for your vehicle and the way you drive. Then get them shipped fast and free on all orders over $50. Shipping is in as little as one day. Free. TireRack.com ships to independent, recommended installers. TireRack.com, the way tire buying should be. Touchdown! Braxton, again, you had multiple offensive coordinators. Chuck Martin was your last one. You had Charlie Molnar, and I think uh, Charlie Weiss was actually the offensive coordinator in your late days under him. How much does the offensive play caller, how much does the offensive coordinator influence offensive line player? Was it different for each of those guys? I think it was different for each of those guys. Again, I think we're – you see some of these OCs succeed in, um, in comparison to others is just really playing to the strengths of their group that they have with them. And, and you know, where I think you see a lot of teams fail is where they try and do the same thing over and over and over again, year over year, and they have a different group of guys that come in and it may not just be the best fit. So the guys who, um, you know, do really well, I think are guys that mold and gel with the group they have. And, and uh, again, when I was there, you know, on my last year with BK, again, we, we ran the ball because we had a big physical group up front. And, um, you know, like I said, things have changed a little bit. Not that these guys aren't physical, but they're a little, they're a little more athletic, a little leaner. Um, you know, that's a spread out crew that can get on, get on some edges and then obviously perform in the past game as well. One of your teammates is being mentioned, or former teammates is being mentioned as a possible offensive coordinator, probably the favorite to land that job. I'm wondering, have you kept in contact with Tommy, and do you have a sense of 
how he would do in the offensive coordinator, offensive play caller job? Yeah, you know, Tommy and I talk from time to time. Uh, I try and link up with him every time I'm on campus. Um, you know, Tommy's a brilliant football mind. He grew up around it with his dad being a coach and working in the NFL. And, um, you know, I think this is, you know, you look at another instance, another guy like Charlie Weiss Jr., uh, a guy who's been around it his whole life, their minds, their brains just function different than, than other people. So, you know, I think Tommy, um, even though he's young, I, I've never been a guy to look at age as being a requirement for taking on a high level role. Um, I think you, um, there's a lot of potential there. I think Tommy could step in and do a great job. You know, I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure in the bowl game. If, if that was a, you know, a combination between him and BK working together, calling the plays, or if it was, you know, solely Tommy, um, you know, I think I think Tommy's got a huge upside in, in what his future could look like with the university. Braxton, so if Tommy becomes the offensive coordinator, are you going to be pitching him uh, ideas for to, to make sure the offensive line plays well? <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I, I've always told Tommy a lot of things, and Tommy Tommy's always been a little bit smarter than I am, so <laughs> he's, I've always followed his lead. Well, I do want to circle back to your thought about his age. I think when I – hear from people their feedback there are a lot of people in his corner and i would say the second biggest contingent is anybody but tommy reese because they're worried about him matching up with let's say brent venables from clemson and and wisconsin's defensive coordinator but but in your mind is he ready to do that at at age 27 with the experience he has given his background do you think that tommy could be an elite guy in 2020, not an elite guy three years from now, but an elite guy next year. Yeah, I mean, I, honestly, I think anything's possible. You look at, again, I'm going to throw another example out there, but a guy like Sean McVay, no, nobody mm-hmm. thought he was going to step in and do what he did as a head coach in the NFL. And, and you know, he's proved everyone wrong. So, you know, I, I, from what, as well as I know Tommy, I know he's going to, he would put in the work. Um, and I, I just know from the time I've spent with him how brilliant of a football mind he is. Again, it goes back to, you know, he's going to gain experience. He's going to learn some things and make some mistakes like we all have. Um, but at the end of the day, I think, you know, with a with a mentor like BK and, and the group that they surround themselves with, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that he could be successful. Was he, was he like that as a quarterback when he was – now in 2012, your your last year, he was kind of the relief pitcher, but you had him as a starter in 2011 and a good part of 2010. Was he like that? Could you tell that this was kind of the road that he might go down as far as a brilliant offensive mind? Yeah, absolutely. I mean that was that was always Tommy's biggest strength was you know, he could read defenses, he could make you know calls. Um, he was that you know, agile at the, at the line, you know, obviously Tom, the biggest knock anyone ever had on Tommy was, you know, his lack of mobility or arm strength, but he was always able to make up for it with, with his brain. And, um, I think that's exactly what you need, um, with an offensive coordinator. Braxton, Tommy is on a very short list of quarterbacks that 
came to Notre Dame as quarterbacks, never switched positions, and exhausted their eligibility um, since uh, the Lou Holtz era. He's actually one one of only three with Brady Quinn and Evan Sharpley. And now Ian Book is looking to become the fourth when he announced that he will return for his fifth season. I'm curious from your career playing center and having relationships with the with the starting quarterbacks. What what is your sense of how taxing it can be for for Notre Dame quarterbacks with all the pressure that they face? Yeah, you know it's it, it when you're a top program, you're playing the quarterback position is it, it's mentally taxing. You know, there's a lot of outside pressures, people pulling you in different directions. Um, you know, but that's what we all signed up for. That's uh, Ian knew coming to Notre Dame that you know his goal obviously was to be the starting quarterback, and, and you know what comes with that. So, um, you know, I'm I'm excited to see him coming back i think there's a lot of unfinished you know business to take care of and i think he's going to do a good job doing that braxton when you looked at last year's team the 2018 team that got to the playoff and even this 2019 team do you feel like the talent is pretty comparable do you think the program's in a different place than in 2012 what's kind of your your take on that yeah, I would say it's comparable. I mean, there's, you know, the Georgia game, a, a tough loss, obviously, early in the year. The Michigan game was, you know, the, the Michigan game, to me, was a flashback to the kind of the position we were in in the Alabama game. It's just you go in with a game plan and things don't go your way and it completely changes. And, you know, that one, that's one of those games that spirals out of control. And it on, on when you look at the scoreboard, it doesn't show – truly what what this Notre Dame team was um so I think that you know the loss made this team obviously not look as good as what they really were um so it's hard to compare I mean every, every team obviously a little different um you know early on in the year everybody wanted to compare you know this year's team um or last year's team to the 2012 team and, it, and at the end of the day I told them you, you can't even compare them it was just, you know every team and I think I've said this the whole time we've been talking today is every group is so different. Um, the makeup, um, the camaraderie among the team and, and just what the, what the guys play for. So, um, you know, I, I think the talent, obviously the talent is comparable. Um, but every year is just a different group of guys. Braxton, I'm curious when you, when you look at Notre Dame and where they stand in the national landscape right now in college football, do you believe this program can win a national championship, say, in the next five years or so? You know, I think um, to do that, obviously, to, to me, if you have a really good quarterback and an outstanding defense, there you, you have a chance every year. And that's why we were in the position that we were in in 2012. Is we had um, some good quarterback play. And we had an outstanding defense, and they kept us in every single game. And, and when we needed to make plays, we made plays. Um, so as long as they continue to recruit the high-end athletes um, on defense and some big physical guys up front, I think um, along with obviously Book coming back for a fifth year, it's, there's a, a big opportunity. Well, Braxton, I think I saw a picture of you recently. You look almost more like a tight end than a center these days. <laughs> And uh, and I know that you're a general manager at Lippert Components. Can you kind of catch us up with with life with Braxton Cave since 2012 and what what you do in your job and how much you're involved with football? 
Yeah, so after I hung those cleats up in 2016, my wife and I moved back. Uh, we actually lived about 10 minutes from campus um, and took a role with Lipper Components running operations. Uh, we're, a, we're a publicly held company in the RV Marine Leisure um, space. Um, and we, you know, it's, it's been really good for me. It's been a, a bit, obviously a big time change of pace. Uh, my biggest, my biggest concern, obviously getting out of football was that locker room feel, the camaraderie. And, you know, I've been blessed to be part of an awesome company. Um, I wouldn't change anything, you know, as far as what, what career path I took after football, you know, as far as the, the weight goes. Um, I'm right now. I'm sitting around 250, and at my highest at Notre Dame, I was 333. Wow, <laughs> an unimpressive 333. <laughs> um, so, you know, my my big thing. I remember what when I was, you know, later on in my career at Notre Dame. I remember talking with Kyle Rudolph and telling him that I couldn't wait for the day that I weighed less than him. And I'm definitely there now. So I give him <laughs> give him crap about that all the time. And, but he likes he'll he'll throw back in there the the nice uh, checks that he's still getting. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, life life is great. You know, my wife and I we're doing awesome. We have uh, our daughter will be three wow. uh, in a couple weeks here, and we uh, four months ago brought our our baby boy uh, into the world. So things are good. We're uh, we're rocking and rolling and. You know, as far as being around the football program, uh, I like to, I get back for the fantasy camp, spend some time with those guys. Um, any opportunity I get, you know, I had some opportunity with Coach Quinn to spend a little bit of time with the O-line this year. Um, I can't say that I've had uh, a ton of exposure with the team since I've been gone. Just obviously I've only been back now for, for three years and life's been crazy, but um you know, it's nice being able to be just 15 minutes down the road, 10, 15 minutes down the road and able to hop over to campus and, and see the guys or catch a practice or, you know, obviously check out the games on Saturday. All right, Braxton, that's all we have for you. We appreciate you taking time to talk to us and congrats on all your success and we'll catch up with you another time. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Pot of Gold podcast presented by Zaxby's. Crime lovers are always looking for new and engaging content. The Already Gone podcast covers stories from Michigan and the Great Lakes region. Cases you haven't heard before, like the Mayo Hunters or the murder of 16-year-old Justin Mello, plus better-known cases like the death of Jane Bashara and Illinois' own Lori Dan. Already Gone started in 2016, so there is a big back catalog for you to enjoy. Find Already Gone on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, or your favorite podcatcher. Now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Let's try to forecast some more offseason news, Eric. First one I have for us is, will Notre Dame announce its new offensive coordinator before or after January 20th? Well, that protracted process is what gets you hung up right and and i think they'll certainly have the decision and you would think that it, if it's going to be tommy reese they wouldn't have to be quite as exhaustive sure um, yeah. but 
we've seen those promotions before take a little bit of while, even when it's internal. I'm going to say before January 20th. I'm going to be. I'm going to go with before as well. I think, obviously, with the the chance that it could be Tommy Reese, that would maybe make it seem like it would be easier to. Uh, I'm still kind of curious what outside candidates they are looking at. If there, there's still some more guys that could um, come open or be more interested in it as as the month progresses. Um, so that maybe could delay it a little bit, but I would think um, Notre Dame probably has a good, pretty good idea of what it wants to do there. Um, so I will go with before January 20th, and we will see if we are both right. Next one, will Notre Dame announce its new defensive assistant coach before or after February 5th? I'm going to say before. Uh, again, I think these things take about 10 days once they make the decision, and I think that they're going to make a decision before then. I don't think Brian Kelly wants to fool around with it. Yeah, I'm going to go with after just because I'm curious to see what how they decide to go about this. If they if they want to just do a one for one replacement for Todd Light, if they want to reconfigure the defensive staff in some way to give uh, Terry Joseph more responsibility in the secondary, maybe they hire a maybe say like a linebackers coach to help Clark Lee out or something like that. So um, I will go with after. Maybe they um, aren't as certain how this is going to play out maybe that's just because i don't know how it's going to play out and maybe they have they probably have a better idea than i do at this point but i will go after this play i I don't know how big of a hurry it is especially with they have the cornerback sign in their class and so i don't think they were going to be pushing uh, for another cornerback before the end of the the next signing day and which is february 5th which is why i picked that date um and then uh we will see how how things play out from there so I will go with after. I think maybe we'll have to wait a little bit longer to find out what happens. I think it would be a mistake if they reconsider reconfigure their defense. I thought when they split, Todd Light used to do all of it. Right. I thought when they split it, the the defensive backs play got better. Sure. I, I don't disagree with you. Next question is over under two and a half transfers, excluding grad transfers, out of Notre Dame before the Irish leave for Dublin in August. That's a tough one because when you do the math – it, are you including Colin Grunhard and Nick McAsaf in next year's number or not? Uh, and it, it may not be both of them. Um, and that would put them at 90 if you included both of them. So then you would have to lose. Based off our current projections. Right, right. current projections. You would have to lose five people, five more people. Mm-hmm. If, it's just, if they're not including either, then you have to lose three. And I think – there's probably one more fifth year that would do a grad transfer. And then, so I, I'm going to say it's the lower number. So I'm going to say, oh gosh, I'm going to say over. I just <laughs> contradicted myself because there's always a surprise. There's always somebody that comes out of spring that's right. Not but so happy. also, sometimes there, there's just the medical heart, me- medical retirement where guys would, right. they decide that they, they can't do it anymore and they've had too many injuries. Um, I don't know if there's any guys that necessarily come to mind. Yeah. Um, and I don't necessarily want to speculate on guys who would yeah, transfer. Trevor Roland would have been the guy. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I'll go with over as well. Just It seems like, um, especially when you have coaches that are established in a program for a while, I think players have a better sense of where they stand in the in the program because those coaches haven't, aren't going anywhere. And so then maybe they see the writing on the wall and decide they want to get out of here. So I think um, that there maybe is a chance to go over two and a half transfers. Uh, last one I have for us is over under seven and a half Notre Dame invitees to this year's NFL scouting combine. Well, I tried to count them up myself, and I came up with Aquora, Kareem, Elliott, Gilman, Komet, Claypool, and Pride. So I have seven. 
So I'm going under. All right. Um, that would that would mean you wouldn't be including potentially Asmar Bilal. Correct. Um, Jameer Jones. Correct. And then those are the two guys that I think could be possible. And then also that's Chris Fink and Tony Jones Jr. I, I think Fink and Tony Jones Jr. are the least likely of those guys I mentioned in yeah. addition to the ones you mentioned. Um, Bilal is, is probably a borderline. Right. And Jameer Jones just played so well this year that he I, did. But I, it's obviously a, a very talented position and a very highly coveted position. So I'm curious to see, and maybe I think uh, there were. He, I want to say there was an announcement of who he signed with uh, for an agent, and I think he was listed as an outside linebacker, so more like a three-four outside linebacker, which I think would make some sense, um, given his skill set. So maybe that allows him to get into. Maybe that opens the door for him. Maybe as a possibility to get into the combine. Um, but yeah, it, it's gonna. There's probably going to be one or two guys that you could probably make a pretty good argument for to being at the combine, and I think we had those same discussions last year. Um, but I'm just going to go over. I just feel like um, there are enough guys there that they they feel like they maybe want to see some more of. And um, Fink, especially, I, I think he certainly had a good college career. I don't know that he'll have how much of a pro career he'll have. But the wide receiver position also is just so loaded that you can be really good and not get invited to the combine at that position right now. Um, so. Uh, I'll go over seven and a half, and, and maybe uh, the combine will give uh, some a couple of Notre Dame guys the benefit it out there and give them an invite. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys are, are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at T James NDI and Eric's at E Hansen NDI. Um, first, I wanted to start, we would talk about Todd Light a little bit more. We didn't receive any questions specifically about Todd Light. Um, news came out on Thursday um, when Brian Kelly thanked uh, Todd Light for his work over the past five years in a statement. Um, Todd Light told Irish Sports Daily that he will work through the rest of his contract, which will end before the 2020 season. Joining his family in California and pursue a coaching job on the West Coast, his son Logan um, I confirmed as a freshman at Modern Day in Santa Ana, California, which is a football powerhouse program. So makes sense that he would want to go join them out there and be closer to them potentially. Um, my question for you, Eric, just to start, I guess, how do you, how big of a loss do you think this is for Notre Dame? And then what do you think Kelly should be looking for in replacing this position? Oh, Todd Light always um, kind of confused me from this standpoint. I thought he would be a better recruiter. Mm-hmm. I still think he's a great developer of talent. I I think when you look at the cornerbacks that he's coached, they've gotten better consistently. And I think especially that separation of duties when he didn't have to coach both safeties and corners, the, that was a, a, of great benefit. When you t- spoke speak to Todd Light, he's – represents the university so well and such mm-hmm. a class individual and again that's why the recruiting part was kind of a head scratcher for me right with him so i think that notre dame needs to get somebody that's every bit the player development guy that todd light was right. and get a better recruiter matched up with that i don't think you can sacrifice either because you look at the cornerback position and it may be the position that's going to make the difference whether Notre Dame gets into the playoff or not based on developing those players. In terms of recruiting down the road, yeah, it's 
but but you look back at some of the classes and you look at some of the guys that slipped away. Right. You know, Thomas Graham, and we saw them playing. Thomas yeah. Graham, Paulson Adebo, uh, Kalon Gervin, Elijah Hicks. Right. And every one of those guys is pretty good, at least – I would say everybody, but maybe Gervin and Gervin, I still think could be right. End up yeah, being, those other guys have played a lot at the yeah. places they're at. Yeah, and I, I mean, think they're all moving out now. I don't even think they're going to be there anymore. I think Adebo's right. going to the NFL. I think Elijah Hicks maybe as well. And Graham was all over the place in that Wisconsin game. He right. was he just, at Oregon, right at Oregon. Yeah. So, um, so there's a, there's an opportunity there, but certainly, you know the player development and and they have a guy like that coaching their safeties right now and I think Terry Joseph I think those guys are well coached and he's a pretty good recruiter even though it didn't sure. maybe get reflected in this last cycle right well yeah they, they weren't really targeting as many safeties so right. I, mean, I think he did help out with the cornerback recruiting yeah. and identifying which guys they wanted to go after and he though. helped land the Isaiah Pryor that was a big part of yeah absolutely that transfer um, I think one thing I, 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 I did some research on when I wrote about Todd Light is that, yes, they, they want to improve cornerback recruiting. They have an opportunity to, but Todd Light isn't the only one who struggled at recruiting top-end cornerbacks at Notre Dame. Um, since the Rivals era started in, 20, in 2002, which is when they first started ranking recruits, the 20, 2002 class, Notre Dame has signed only four cornerbacks that were ranked among the top 10 at the position and in the top 100 overall, and those were Darren Walls and Rayshon McNeil in 2006. Gary Gray in 2007, and T. Shepard in 2012. So not a very long list there. Um, not necessarily a list of great players that ended up panning out at Notre Dame either. Yeah. Um, so cornerback recruiting needs to improve. They need to figure out a way to do that. Maybe is it a, is it a spot where there's not a ton of cornerbacks that don't, that don't necessarily fit the Notre Dame profile? But like we mentioned, those guys, Thomas Graham, Paulson Adebo, Elijah Hicks, Kalon Gervin, Notre Dame felt that they fit the profile, and at least for Paulson Adebo and Elijah Hicks were publicly committed to Notre Dame for a while before uh, Gervin too. Back, uh, yeah, and Gervin too uh, before backing out of those commitments, and that was something I thought Todd Light maybe learned from because that was early on in his in his coaching career here. Um, hadn't been a recruiter in the past before, um, so I thought he would improve from that. He didn't necessarily lose commitments after that uh, at a regular regular rate, but didn't necessarily go out and catch some of the big time cornerbacks. I think. One guy that Houston Griffith was that it just depends on whether you think he's a cornerback or a safety. He was he was very influential in that recruitment, um, and we're waiting to see how he pans out as a safety with his position switch next year. Next question is from Josh Melton at Joshua Melton. This is the second time a major player reversed course from an in-season comments about returning to declare from the draft. Uh, speaking of Cole Komet and Will Fuller. I don't blame him, of course, but how massive of a hit is this to the offense in 2020, and could it even affect your season prediction? Well, I think Cole Komet would have been an All-American next year. Yeah. And so you're taking a absolute off the field. Now, absolute if he's healthy. Um, I think there's a lot of talent at that position, uh, but you're taking an All-American out of the lineup. So, yeah. I don't think it it hurts their trajectory to me. I think there's enough good weapons. It just adds another if to the right to the pot. Uh, but I still think there are bigger concerns other places on the team. But yeah, it would have been wonderful to have Cole Komet on the team. Yeah, I think that because there are bigger concerns, that maybe magnifies it a little bit more. Uh, Book is losing both Chris Fink and Clay, Chase Claypool, and now Cole Komet. So. 
he doesn't really have that go-to guy as as a as a pass catcher. And so I think if you were to have Cole Komet back and working against some new receivers, I think you'd feel a little bit better about that moving forward. And certainly, like you mentioned, there is talent there. I think Tommy Tremble can be uh, pretty special. Um, and I think that they have some guys behind him, and it, even uh, Michael Mayer coming in. I don't know how much he'd be able to compete as a freshman, but um, certainly has a bright future, and he looks pretty physically prepared to play college football. Um, but with a lot of things, I think like last year we were talking about a lot of the re- receivers that we coming out of the spring. We're like, okay, we see, okay, Lawrence Keys is going to be a contributor. Michael Young is going to be a contributor. Braden Lindsay is going to contribute a lot. And that didn't necessarily pan out as as much as we thought into the season, and it kind of just went but reverted back to the Claypool, Komet, and Fink show. Um, but this is a year they kind of have to have those guys kind of step up, and so with Cole Komet gone, that just adds kind of some of the pressure to that wide receiver group. Um, but I, I do think um, I don't know that it necessarily changes my prediction on the season, but um, I think certainly you'd like to have a guy like Cole Komet going up against Wisconsin and Clemson, yeah. and and now you don't. Next question is from John Dillon at Dills127. How does the departures of Tony Jones Jr. and Cole Komet impact next season's title chase, and do we have good enough replacements to overcome the, those losses? Well, we kind of just did the Komet one. Right. Um, so let's focus on Tony Jones. I loved what he did this year. I I, I feel like when I describe Tony Jones, I always have a butt in my sentence. Right. Um and I think I'm going to have that again. I think there are players that can elevate the run game more than another year of Tony Jones. But what Tony Jones did this season was phenomenal. He far exceeded my expectations. Yes. And so him being back wouldn't have impeded, I don't I don't think, anyone. It means other people are going to have to step up. I think they have enough options to kind of do that but Tony Jones I mean his last run kind of personified his year where he you know the announcers were like is anybody going to catch him and I'm like of course they are and (laughs) but it didn't matter and it didn't matter because that stiff arm was wicked and he got into the end zone yeah I I agree that I think they'll be okay at running back Um, I think both you and I were very high on Jafar Armstrong coming into the season that didn't pan out um, I'd still would like to see that potentially be um, an option for Notre Dame and, and going into a season and maybe avoiding health concerns. Um, he could still get to that ceiling that we thought he had. Um, but I think it's it's still murky right now. You have other options that Notre Dame is going to consider. Certainly, um, Sebel Flemister and Jameer Smith got some experience this year. Um, Kyron Williams didn't play much this year, but I, I liked him as a potential contributor. Um, and then certainly you have Chris Tyree coming in as a freshman with all kinds of speed, um, but lacking a, a bit of size. So um, I think there, there's enough. There are enough guys there. Uh, it's just a matter of will anyone kind of rise to the top and be kind of a, the lead back and be uh, enough for, to improve Notre Dame's running game. Um, I'd like it to be Jafar Armstrong as that guy, but we'll have to see how that all pans out. Uh, one more question related to Cole Komet and Tony Jones Jr. from Hurley Fever at Hurley Fever. He said, with Komet and Jones declaring for the NFL draft, how much more pressure is on Brian Kelly to make the right hire at offensive coordinator? I think the pressure is the same. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, you know, no matter who's playing, this is a big hire for Brian Kelly, and there's a really good window in 2020 of opportunity for Notre Dame to break through what this program has been. Somebody that 
now can get close but hasn't been able to get to the top all the way. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's – I think the pressure doesn't change. Yeah, the pressure is high, especially considering that we think one of these days is going to be towards the end of Brian Kelly's tenure at Notre Dame. And so I think he's probably looking at this as this offensive coordinator could potentially be my last offensive coordinator at Notre Dame. I think that that, that could be a realistic possibility. Um, and so you want it to be the guy that can help get you to a national championship game and win that. So um, that's where the pressure comes from. I'm not sure it comes from the, which players are returning. And I imagine Brian Kelly had a pretty good inclination that Cole Komet and Tony Jones Jr. were, were potentially not going to be back next season as well. A couple more questions I, I wanted to follow up on the topic. Um, ignoring w- whether or not we expected these departures, because I think um, especially with the Lohi Gilman, we kind of assumed that he was gone. Which player do you think is the biggest loss for Notre Dame in 2020? So of Cole Komet, Jones, Jones and Gilman. Gilman. Uh, I would still say it's Cole Komet is because he's Komet? an All-American. Right. Um, you know, I think Gilman is really good, and that would have given them more numbers and more certainty right. and the safety, a little bit more safety net there um, because they only have five safeties right now. Right. Uh, and they're all coming from groups where you feel kind of good about the people coming up, so I'll still stick with Komet. Sure. And then kind of like what you mentioned, they're all at position groups where they have good backups. Which position group do you think is in the best shape, running back, tight end, or safety? I would say tight end because I think safety's one injury away from being kind right. of in an icky spot. And I think running back could also deal with an injury better. Yeah, I think I agree with you on both of those. I, I almost wanted to make the argument for Alohi Gilman as being the bigger loss than Cole Komet, but I couldn't quite get myself there. So um, I, I still – obviously they're both very big losses, um, whether or not they were expected or not. So um, I think uh, Notre Dame has some big shoes to fill with both those guys leaving. Next question is from Irish Fan 10 at IrishFan102. Does the football communication department coordinate the players returning or leaving announcements? Is this planned out ahead of time so each player has his moment in the sun? I'm not sure about this current regime of sports information. I'm still kind of learning the nuances of how they do things. I know when Michael Birch headed it, he helped the players uh, make those announcements and get the graphics that they wanted and uh I'm not sure that they were like, well, let's stagger these, but I think there's some thought about it so that right. they get their moment to shine and and you know it's kind of like coming out of your last game, you get a standing ovation kind of thing. Yeah, and I think the players probably communicate with each other about it too. Like, hey, I, I want to do this this day. Um, which day are you planning to do? Let's let's kind of split. Let's do it on a day where Tyler James <laughs> is trying to drive back from Lapore. <laughs> let's make sure Eric Hansen isn't working, so Tyler has to do it. Uh, I, I, I it was definitely deserved on my end. I was I was happy to do it, um, and uh, we'll see if uh, someone announces any news while we're recording this podcast. All right, next question is from Nick Gonzalez at Nick G fourteen twenty one. How are we feeling about the wide receiver receiver group going forward? Losing Chase and. Uh, Chris Fink, how, who do we see stepping up aside from Keys and Speedy, a.k.a. Braden Lindsay? Well, I've been critical of Delvon Alexander's recruiting, and he answered it in these last two cycles, 2020 and 2021, mm-hmm. pretty resoundingly. I've now been skeptical of his player development, but I don't know how it knits with everybody else on the offense. 
this is a big year for Dell to show that he's sure. a player development guy. So I'll I'll phrase it like that 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 I think he can really forge a reputation as a player development guy because I think the talent is there. Right. Um, and I'm excited about the talent. I think it's an athletic group. I hear a lot of rumblings about Kevin Austin and how good he's going to be next year. We all kind of seen what Braden Lindsey can do. Uh, Lawrence Keys. I think Joe Wilkins is somebody that Brian Kelly's really excited about. Yep. Jordan Johnson and the other freshmen. You know, there's and, and you know I think um, and then Ben Skoranek, the grad ben, transfer. Ben Skoranek, the grad transfer. You know, I'm not sure what's going on with Javon, Javon McKinley. My mm-hmm. guess is that he's not coming back. Right. We'll see. Um, but I like the group. So it's a matter of, you know, not saying that they're young and experienced. you got to get them to where they look like receivers yep. at right. other schools that are young. Yeah, and like I mentioned before, there's no other options now. They can't revert back to, okay, it's just going to be the Chase Claypool, Chris Fink, Cole Komet show. Right. It ha- these guys have to step up or Notre Dame's passing game is going to be lacking and, and certainly coming off a season where you weren't sure how much you could rely on the running game. They really need the passing game to continue to be um, sharp. And with Ian Book at quarterback, you think there's a good chance for that. Um, but he's got to develop some relationships with these younger guys. I I agree that Kevin Austin is probably worth the wait, I, I would I would imagine. Um, I, I'm curious how Ben Skoranek fits in. He, he was made some pretty uh, incredible catches during his time at Northwestern coming off an ankle injury as a senior that allowed him to uh, – save a, a final year of eligibility to grad transfer and jordan johnson's the one of the maybe the next factor can he compete early there's not a great history of freshmen coming in right away and playing receiver um at notre dame under, under brian kelly um i like xavier watts i think he's also a freshman that i wouldn't be surprised if he finds his way onto the field um so i think we like a lot of guys it's just a matter of those guys um stepping up and, and making plays on saturdays uh next question from wayne Oosterhoff at W. Oosterhoff, what are the pros and cons of the recent wideout transfer, and what are the chances Harry Heastan returns? I'm going to let you take the pros and cons since you talked to Ben. Yeah, I'll do, I'll do the receiver. You do the Harry Heastan. And was the question, do I think he's coming What back are the chances Harry Heastan's returns? I think he's going to have a lot of job offers mm-hmm. uh, from the NFL. <laughs> Especially after the all-pro list came yeah. out today and three of his former college players, Zach Martin, yeah. Ronnie Stanley, and Quentin Nelson were on the first team all-pro list. I mean, if you're Brian Kelly, you have to make that phone call and you have to gauge his interest. And I think the reason that tipped the Bears in Harry's favor was because he wasn't an enthusiastic recruiter. I didn't think he was bad at it. Some no, people think he was not. I, I thought, you know what? Mike McGlinchey wasn't a top 250 player, and he ends up being a top 10 pick. Right. Ronnie Stanley wasn't 150. Zach Martin wasn't a top 250 player. And, and so he – obviously could develop and evaluate talent right so maybe he didn't get everybody's five stars but sometimes he did he got quentin nelson right i mean i I remember talking to craig nelson quentin's dad about you know quentin got in the car and said after his visit and said that's the guy i want to play for and everybody wanted quentin nelson he was a five star so but i i I think the chances are less than 50 percent. i don't think it aligns I, i think that um if if Harry wanted to come back, Brian could make it make it happen. Right. I think pr- 
probably what we're going to see, though, is a veteran coach come in and help with the offensive line, coach tight ends, and be there as a sounding board for Tommy Reese. And I think that's going to be a pretty good configuration. And we're going to find out how good Jeff Quinn is this year um, because there's no excuses for this group not to be very, very good, if not elite. And they're going to have to be if they want to get to the um, college football playoff. You look at the teams that were in the finals for the Joe Moore Award, they were the playoff teams. And it wasn't just because they were playoff teams. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. They do a lot of film study. Those guys do. They they do a lot of film study, and uh, those are the teams. And and so Notre Dame, if they're going to be, they got to be elite. They can't just be the mid year honor roll. Yeah, I, to me, it's a no brainer. If Heastan wants to come back, you try to make that happen, and maybe that means you make Jeff Quinn the tight ends coach and have some collaboration with Harry Heastan. Um, I don't have a great sense of how Jeff Quinn would potentially be open to that. I would think he would. Um, if he wants to be at Notre Dame as much as it seemed like he had been, the fact that he stayed around, stuck around here to be a, a guy off the field in, a, in an analyst role before um, receiving the offensive line coaching job makes it seem like he's a guy that values being at Notre Dame and appreciates that. So that could be a possibility. But, yeah, I think there's going to be plenty of people that want Harry Heaston. I think the Bears probably made a mistake in terms of um, sort of pinning him as a bit of a scapegoat for certainly the offensive line not having a good season, but um, they're uh, – issues go well beyond the offensive line and I don't think Gary Heastan had a, a lot of talent that he was given in terms of offensive line players in the NFL um, in terms of Ben Skoranek I, I did speak to Ben yesterday um, uh, and uh, kind of caught up with him a little bit he explained his his ankle surgery he kind of compared it to what Tua Tagovailoa had to go through with his ankle injury and I told him I'm pretty sure that's the same thing Chase Claypool yeah. went through in, during the last off season. So that was I think Tight news, rope surgery. I think that was news to him. So I, I think maybe he'll be reaching out to Chase Claypool maybe for some advice. But he seems like he's in a good position right now. He's going to be able to come in um, in January and compete in spring spring practice. And he said, I mean, nothing nothing was promised to me in terms of playing time. Certainly, being his last year, he wants to go somewhere where he can play because he was going to be able to play plenty at Northwestern if he if he wanted to, but. Um, their offense was certainly in not a very good position um, coming out of there. He's six foot four, two hundred fifteen pounds, caught one hundred and ten passes for fourteen hundred seventeen yards and eight touchdowns in his career. Um, a big body. Um, I don't know that he, he's made some pretty spectacular catches. I don't know that he's going to be a catch the ball and run away from a lot of guys and or create a lot of separation, but um, has shown a, a good catch radius to use a Brian Kelly term, um, and I think uh, is a valuable addition to to the offense when you're talking about a, a position group that. Is, is lacking in terms of experience, but I think uh, has some young promise coming up. Next question is from the Jackal at the underscore Jack Attack. Any word on offensive coordinator candidates, or is it a done deal for Tommy Reese? I think there are candidates that are out there. I think there's momentum for Tommy Reese to be the offensive coordinator. That's until I hear something differently. That's the way I think this is headed, and I'm pretty confident with that. Yep, I will follow your lead when it comes to the, that opening. Uh, next question is from Frank Sarah at Frank Sarah Three. Do you think Notre Dame will get a grad transfer cornerback? I think they should, uh, but I don't know that that's what they want given the numbers where they're at, and maybe they can reevaluate after spring practice. Sure, because there are going to be some people and having that, a cornerbacks coach. <laughs> yeah, and having a cornerbacks coach, they're sometimes guys pop into the portal after their spring practices. Right. And and that would be a good time to reevaluate it. 
you know, as I was putting together next year's depth chart for the, our website, mm-hmm. you know, I kept saying, who's the boundary corner here? Right. Who's the boundary corner? Where's the boundary corner? I, I certainly think that that would be a good investment for one year because you feel good about the athletes, but I think they need another year in the oven. Yeah. I, I also, there's gotta be the right candidate. I, I haven't seen or heard of any cornerbacks, uh, on the, in the grad transfer market right now. Uh, maybe I haven't done enough research in it, but when you talk about Ben Skoranek, it's like, okay, the kid's from Fort Wayne. He visited Notre Dame as a recruit, never got an offer here. But if Notre Dame decided that they wanted him, it, that makes a lot of sense in terms of a grad transfer candidate coming from Northwestern. I'm not sure who those guys would be right now at cornerback, um, and that's Notre Dame's job to kind of figure out if there are guys worth trying to make that that move for move for and pursuing. But um, it, it is nice to see Notre Dame active in the grad transfer market as they have been with Isaiah Pryor and Ben Skoranek. Um but we've seen there's certainly been plenty of hits and misses, more misses than hits, I would say, that for Notre Dame in terms of the grad transfers. Although Cody Riggs was a starter as a corner. Right, yeah. And yeah. so there, there's a history of being able to have some success there. Um, so we'll see how that all plays out. Uh, next question is from ND Football Discord at NDF underscore Discord. Who is more likely to start next season, Jordan Johnson or Michael Mayer? Is there a greater than 50% chance both of them start, are starters by the end of September? I'll say no to the second part. Yeah, agreed. Um, I would say Michael Mayer based on the Cole Komet news. I think agreed as well. Yeah, that 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 position is wide open with Cole Komet out of it, and I, so I think you look at everybody in the spring. Uh, Michael won't be here yet unless he changes his mind eleventh <laughs> hour and begs his school to let him do it. He were, originally was going to be an early enrollee, but. So he won't be there till June, but I think you're going to look at everybody else, evaluate them, and then plug him in in June, and kind of see where he fits. Um, you know, I was going back over the freshman white or freshman tight end numbers, and Kyle Rudolph is really the only one that put up kind of big numbers as a right. true freshman. Twenty nine catches. You know, not. I don't know that there's anybody else that's over ten catches as a true freshman in the two thousands. But Michael Mayer is a special player, right. and he's got a special opportunity. Yeah, and I think it somewhat depends on the offensive coordinator and their philosophy. How much do they value two tight end sets? Because I think that certainly opens the door for Michael Mayer to potentially start if they're starting two tight ends. Um, like I mentioned earlier, wide receiver for freshmen, just kind of like you mentioned with tight ends, it's not necessarily um, um, friendly for freshmen to come in at Notre Dame and, and be uh, top-line contributors right away. Um, so I, I think the path is clearer for Michael Mayer. Um, I also think Michael Mayer is probably a, a better talent in my eyes, even though Jordan Johnson is rated higher um, in overall rankings than Michael Mayer in some places. Um, and uh, I think certainly adding a guy like Ben Skoranek and adding and all the other guys that have come back, Kevin Austin, I think that it just is a little bit more crowded at wide receiver and them both being starters by the end of September would, would be pretty surprising in my mind. But it could be good news because that means that those guys are playing and playing well. Uh, for uh, Next question is from Corey Ra- at Corey Radio. In your opinion, from absolutely essential to it wouldn't hurt, how important will fairly significant contributions by true freshmen be in making a legitimate title run next season? I would put it between Have you ever rated, <laughs> rated anything on that scale yeah. before? <laughs> I, I think that you're missing pieces to to what was missing from the Clemson playoff game was elite speed at wide receiver and 
running back and you have elite speed at running back and I think he needs to play Chris Tyree needs to play but I don't think he necessarily needs to be the starter and just kind of based on his size I don't think he can be the starter but I think he can be a contributor I think Mayer has to contribute I think Jordan Johnson has to get on the field I think you have to show that you can develop those high-end players and not say well they're stuck in the oven they need because these guys are more close to plug and play defensively I'm not sure that there's the need to do that so again my my answer kind of falls in between what what were the two options the options were absolutely essential and it wouldn't hurt I would have it as absolutely possible (laughs) my phrase was could be helpful (laughs) yeah it could be helpful yeah yeah I think like Chris Tyree if he could be a threat in the backfield I think that's helpful I think and I think these guys are mostly offensive guys. I don't know there's going to be a lot of defensive guys that will have big contributions next year. Um, Michael Mayer, like we mentioned, Jordan Johnson. I I continue to mention Xavier Watts at almost any opportunity I get. Uh, so those guys could help. I think they'll, they'll add some speed and some size. Um, maybe not a combination of both when you talk about these different guys, but um, I think that they can maybe contribute, but I don't know that they're going to be uh, X factors that push Notre Dame into into the college football playoff. Next question is from Rich Marazzi at Rich Marazzi. After watching bowl games through the Sugar Bowl, do you think there are 10 teams better than Notre Dame? Well, I have to vote in the AP poll, and I went ahead. Do you update it daily? Uh, no, <laughs> but I did, I did, as of yesterday, I did everybody but one, two, and I left two and three open okay. just in case something really weird sure. happened where I thought Ohio State deserved to be two. Sure. So I did four through 25. And I have Notre Dame 11th. So I do have 10 teams uh, ahead of them. Now, some of that is based on losing to Michigan by 31 points. And even though I think they've kind of rectified a lot of that, you can't dismiss it when you are in in a discussion about whether Wisconsin deserves to be ahead of them with four losses. Um, Now, do I think Notre Dame could beat some of the teams in the top 10? Yeah, but I'm not definitely sure they can um i have oklahoma at nine i i think notre dame that would be a great game <laughs> the big 12 is, is the yeah same with baylor would you have them would you have them ahead of baylor i have them ahead of baylor and yeah. i had them ahead of baylor mm-hmm. the thing is the big 12 the only real game they have marquee outside of their conference is texas beating utah mm-hmm. they didn't play anybody and then they went one and five in the bowls and you know, Oklahoma's whole premise is, well, we beat Baylor twice. <laughs> they lost to a Kansas State team that lost to Navy in its yeah. bowl game. So I'm not sure how good the Big 12 and is. Baylor Penn, lost to a lot of Georgia's backups. Penn State, <laughs> Notre Dame, I think would be another good game too. And yep. I have Penn State ranked higher. Absolutely. So to answer his question, I'm not convinced that there are 10 better teams, but I think there are 10 more deserving teams based on resume, and that's what you have to go by. Right, yeah, I think I agree with you there. I think – being the the expert pollster that you are, it makes sense that you would have a, a good pulse on that. I think that there are teams that would be end up ranked ahead of them that you think Notre Dame could potentially beat, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are ranked better. But I guess the way he phrased it, do you think there are ten teams better? I would still maybe lean towards rank considering those teams as better, just because Notre Dame has proved that it can be worse than the way it's played, and certainly those other teams that have had poor performances too. But I don't know. 
when you talk about the Michigan game that anyone's really had as poor of a performance as at, at, that would be in the top ten as Notre Dame did. All right, one more we'll squeeze in here, an email that you received from Brad Miller and Goshen. A uh, little bit of a long one. To your knowledge, has there been any discussion about the ACC portion of the football schedule being a real liability for the Irish when it comes to strength of schedule issues? In years gone by, ND traditionally had one of the top 10 most difficult schedules in the country year in and year out, but now I'm not even sure that they have a top 25 schedule, and it's all due to the ACC commitment. My fear is that an 11-1 Irish team doesn't stand a hoot in heck of making the playoff based on their schedule, and as much as I love ND, they shouldn't. I actually think there's a scenario where they could go 11 and one next year now and make it. And now it depends on what other teams do, obviously. But if they lost to Wisconsin in a very close game under kind of weird circumstances mm-hmm. up in Green Bay and then beat Clemson in November at home, and Clemson, that was only Clemson's only loss, and it was a Clemson looking team like this year, right. I think that could get Notre Dame in the playoff. Um, as far as the ACC schedule, when that, that first arrangement came out, there was a bowl official that talked to me about it, and he said, you know, I'm concerned that in years that they don't play Florida State and Clemson, this is back when Florida State was good, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that this could be a problem for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think it has been. Even though the ACC was down this year, you know, Notre Dame played three games ACC teams with eight wins or better. Yeah, they were good teams. They weren't great yeah. teams, but they were good teams. Yeah, and and Duke was the worst ACC team they played with five wins. BC was six. Right. So I think the bigger problem for Notre Dame in terms of strength of schedule is the dip with USC and Stanford at the same time. Right. Because you're always going to play one of them as your last game when everybody else is playing those big rivalry games with big – schedule strength of schedule points if you're playing a four and eight stanford team and you crush them people like "Hmm." but if it's a stanford team that's in the top 15 and you beat them on the road or a usc team that's in the top 15 and you beat them on the road that gets your attention so i think that's the bigger issue i think the acc thing is cyclical i think it'll cycle back up florida state will eventually be good again maybe someday miami will I think Virginia's on the rise, so uh, I don't think that's the issue. Yeah, and it's hard to project. I mean, when Notre Dame scheduled Arkansas, you wouldn't expect Arkansas to be one of the worst teams in the SEC. Uh, certainly, you probably didn't expect them to be the best team in the SEC, but you thought that would be a good game going into next season, and, and it's it's not right now. And so there's only so much you can anticipate, especially the way that college football scheduling works now when they're scheduling so far in advance that even if you didn't have – you weren't tied to the ACC – you would still have to be making decisions on on programs five years down the line, ten years down the line. They're um, scheduling in the mid twenty thirties right now. Right, so it's it's still going to be a crapshoot. And I think being that you're going to be uh, playing five ACC games, um, you're probably going to get a, you're probably going to have as good of a hit percentage in terms of those teams being good to great that you would if you were just kind of cobbling together your own schedule. So um, I, other. I don't know that relying on maybe like the old schedule where you're playing Michigan State and Purdue, um, if you were playing those two teams this year, that wasn't going to help your schedule either. So um, I, I think that I think you're right that, that those California teams, especially them, when you end the season on the road at one of those schools, that being a marquee win is certainly um, helpful when you're talking about the college football playoff conversation. And I don't think Notre Dame's situation, even though they're not in a conference, is that different than others. You're always going to be relying on 
the teams on your schedule playing up to their potential and being good and having some wins to show for it. All right, that's it for this week's episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Leave us a review or rating if you like what you hear. The Pot of Gold podcast is brought to you by Zaxby's, the home of handmade-to-order chicken, salads, and more than a dozen mild-to-wild sauces. Stop by your neighborhood Zaxby's today. And Tire Rack, the way tire buying should be. We'll start to get into a bit of an irregular schedule now in the offseason, but we hope to record at least maybe once or twice a month, and we'll try to plan around uh, the latest news um, when necessary. If you stick with NDInsider.com, we'll take care of all your Notre Dame coverage needs.